1 Samuel chapter 16 this evening. The title for this evening's message is David. His name is title enough. And it is a delight to get to speak about such a character from Scripture. A little break from Saul this evening, although we'll get some of him. I started, I started in celebration of getting to David to wear a tuxedo. It would have been appropriate. Decades ago, I uh, did a study on David, personal study, and just poured myself into his life. I think I still have the composition pads with my notes. And if I remember correctly, I wrote down the entire books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, just that much of a blessing. It is from David that we have cited from the Old Testament the most frequent verse in the New Testament. The most frequently cited Old Testament verse is from David in the New Testament. That would be Psalm 110. I'll give you an example of it being cited in Luke chapter 22. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And of course, Psalm 110 starts off with the Lord said to my Lord, sit until my make your enemies your footstool. Sit here at my right hand. He is the most mentioned man in all the Bible. Moses is second with 740 uh, mentions, but David has over 1100. Over 1100 times his name shows up in the Bible more than anyone else. And the name David, of course, means the beloved. And so how appropriate that this would be the dominant name, that there is a message hidden just in that from the Holy Spirit to his people, beloved. He is more than just a giant killer. The sweet psalmist of Israel, the Bible says about him, which means the sweet singer to God. It does, you know, it's, it's kind of make sure we keep it real. And he was a man that just loved singing to God. Good times or bad times. A lot of bad times. And he is also referred to, one of my favorites, as the Lamp of Israel. At least 70 Psalms have his name on them. And possibly uh, quite a few more. Prolific in praise. You hear about people using the phrase towards others or themselves as prayer warrior. Well, that may be, but David was a praise warrior, which is quite remarkable because when life is beating you up, what's the praise? And yet he found light in his struggles. He found room to praise God all the time. So many lessons come from this single character in Scripture for us. Whereas you look at Saul and you say, don't be that way, don't be that way. You look at David and you say, oh man, how did, I, how did he do it? You have to look closely sometimes because he's so human. I mean, Joseph, who can be like Joseph? Joseph and Daniel and Samuel. I mean, these guys were just pillars of truth and strength. David was every bit the man that they were. But there's more written about him, his exploits. How far up front he was in the fight. And that's why he is so special. We now look at verse 1. Now Yahweh said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Well, Saul may have ruled as king, but God spoke to Samuel. Which would you rather? <laughs> Go ahead, rule all you want. I'd rather God speak to me. And so where it says, Yahweh said to Samuel. And the old prophet, he is still the judge of Israel concerning her spiritual state. If you had spiritual needs, you wouldn't go to Saul. You'd go to Samuel. In fact, in 1 Samuel, we read Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He never let up. 
He was no longer the civil ruler, but he, again, never stopped being the spiritual leader. But where God says to him here in verse 1, how long will you mourn for Saul? It's a very touching statement, is it not? It's a very, there's like a friendship there. It's what you say to another friend who needs you to say, how, when are we going to get past this? We have to get past this. This is not one of those places in life where you could just stay here and it is good for you. You know, this, we've got to move on. And I, I, you just, you know, he says to him again, how long are you going to, to mourn for Saul? The old prophet, he loved the self-willed king. He not only had hopes, he had anticipated that those hopes would come to life. And they're all gone now. God has rejected him. Having hoped and anticipated in things that were so special to Samuel, but now they'll never be. They're never going to happen. And emotionally, it, it struck him hard. But... At God's word, as much as he loved Saul and had hope for him, at God's word, Samuel denounced Saul in full. God has taken the kingdom from you and given it to a man better than you. He didn't, he didn't hold back anything. That said, it, that said it all. But it left him to grieve and to mourn over him. And Saul did not even know it. He could care less if he did find out. Here is this man, his heart is broken, this great man of God. And then you have this dark man on the other side. His heart is dark. He's now become murderous. That's going to come out in a moment. And he doesn't even care that Samuel's grieving over him. Grief belongs to love. You don't grieve for something you do not love or have not loved. You can only grieve someone who stands in a special relationship to us. I mean, you can be sad for other things. Well, let me put it this way. Sadness causes its brownouts in our lives, but grief causes blackouts. Grief is deeper. And that's where he was. He mourned. This was a heavy thing. And maybe he pleaded all night with God that there could be some solution, some divine solution that could turn Saul around. And it never came. And so his mourning shows that he had not yet reconciled himself to the hidden ways of God. He wasn't good with this. It wasn't, okay, God said you're rejected. I'm fine with that. No, it was not. God says you're rejected, and I, I don't know what to do. And so Samuel, he mourned Israel's bleak possibilities. What is she going to do now? Who's going to protect us now? What's going to happen to our future? We have a rotten king on the throne, a godless king, a king that God has rejected. What's going to happen? When is the ark going to be united with the tabernacle? And so God says, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. As God is in habit of doing, he moves forward all the time. His truth is marching on and we sing in the hymn. With or without men always extending the invitation to be part of what he's doing. If Saul failed, then God would get a David. Not to trivialize all the pain in between that. But if Samuel failed, uh, well, Samuel wasn't going to fail. God had already put a fence around that man because that man's life was, you could say, fensible. He could do it with him. He couldn't do it with Saul. God could not put a fence around Saul. Saul would keep tunneling out, jumping over, breaking through. Not Samuel. Saul had failed. God had not. That's what he is saying. How many professed Christians are rendered useless because they lose an election? Because something doesn't turn out that was special to them. And they mourn and they grieve. And as a result, the lamp dims. And they're really not that effective. As opposed to those who say, well, I didn't like what happened either. But what, Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, you, you got a Bethlehem for me to go to? I'll fill my oil and I'll go, a horn with oil and I'll go there. These are lessons that come from the scripture for us. You don't have to like it. You have to just do it. Samuel didn't like what he was told, but he did every bit of it. In fact, after he anoints David, it's sort of uneventful. You, you get, at least I do, I get the picture. He says, and Samuel went back to Ramah as though his knuckles were dragging on the ground. 
They weren't. I, I mean, his heart was still probably wounded. But he did, he did whatever he was told to do. And that is what was one of the things so special about him. He says to him, fill your horn with oil and go. Clear orders to the prophet. Now, the implication is that the anointing would not be a smear on his brow. Fill the horn, because you're going to pour all of it out. He didn't say, get just a little vial and just rub it on. <laughs> pour this out. So when David gets anointed, this, the oil is dripping. The psalmist writes about the anointing of Aaron and the oil dripping down on his beard. And that's how it would have been with David. It was something that was, when it happened, everybody knew what was going on. It was not uh, sort of like a water baptism. Everybody knows you've been baptized in Jesus' name. You say, I line up here. This is where I, this is my team. That's what the water baptism says to everybody. And the righteous applaud it and, and welcome you in. And the, uh, the wicked either desire some of that too, or they vilify you for it. The baptism don't under, don't dare if you name your Christ as Lord for one moment, trivialize the value of the water baptism because it is one of two commandments given to the church. It is quite powerful. I will reference it again in a moment. It is so seemingly nothing, right? You just take somebody and you, you submerge them in water. They can do that on their own when they go for a swim. What makes it so special is what's inside that person and how they're sharing it on the outside and saying, this is as for me in my house, I will serve the Lord. So he fills his horn. In fullness, he was to go out. One of the lessons that comes from this, and these are not just sweet biblical lessons. These are lessons of life. This man's heart is still hurting. In fullness, he will anoint David. In fullness, David will receive the anointing. That will come out when we get to that part of this evening's. We won't get all of chapter 16, just the first 13 verses. But the fullness of God, it displaces grief. That's one of the lessons. It pushes it out. Samuel is about the Lord's business. And this kind of fullness begins to remove the doubts. He was perplexed about the possibilities of Israel's future. Well, God is saying, here's my future. I'm still doing what I'm doing. I don't need Saul. One man cannot ruin it. All of them cannot ruin it. God will have his eight in the ark no matter what if it comes to that. And those who serve may not feel full until they're serving. For example, maybe you're in the ushers ministry and you don't feel like serving that day. But then you get on post and now you're in it. That's ministry. That's what it takes. Uh, this is Samuel. He didn't feel up to this until God said, hey, it's, we got to move on here. And now he's on post. And God says to him, I am sending you. It's a critical feature because some go without being sent. Jeremiah had to deal with this all the time. And it, just, it comes out in Jeremiah 23. But if they had stood in my counsel, God says to the prophet. In other words, if they just listened to the scriptures... Was it so much to ask? They're walking around saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, Yahweh this, Yahweh that. Is it so much to ask them to just stand in the counsel and wisdom of the scripture? But if they had stood in my counsel and, and caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned them from their evil way and from their evil doings. And how many times has that scripture verse been trampled in practice? Especially in these, the last of the last days when the apostate church is gaining more momentum than, than uh, maybe the dark ages, it was pretty big. <laughs> it's gonna, the Great Tribulation will eclipse the dark ages, but the dark, dark ages was pretty big, and I don't know that we're there yet globally. Anyway, God says enough with the sorrow, Samson, uh, Samuel. Uh, we need you to get up, and I need you to go. And I want to stop here for a moment because... There's a, several of these in the scriptures where God says to his servant, I need you to move forward. Moses, the great lawgiver, when they're, you know, out of Egypt now, dealing with all that that, that entailed. 
And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? This is at the sea when it wouldn't part. And it was the, you know, the Egyptians were coming. The sea was in front. What were they going to do? They were cornered. Why do you call out to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. When God gets you in that place, it is action time. Prayer won't do it. It's action now. Hopefully that action will be built on prayer. Joshua 7. This is after Achan, of course, caused the armies to be defeated. And Joshua was laying out before the Lord, what is going on here? We're serving you and you let us get beaten like this. And Yahweh said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? <laughs> I love that because if I were Joshua, I'd be thinking, well, I got a few reasons why I'm lying here on my face. But I wouldn't dare say them. <laughs> In Ezekiel, chapter 1, Ezekiel gets this tremendous vision, which is to, Ezekiel is cited so much in, in the book of Revelation, you miss it about, you know, what he saw in that first chapter. And he's taken by this, and Ezekiel writes that, he says in chapter 2, and he said to me, God said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. It's a time to lay, you know, prostrate before the Lord. And there's a time to stand up before the Lord. And those who are in rhythm with God have that spiritual discernment because they've been in pursuit of God according to his word. They will be able to discern their right hand from their left in the presence of the Lord. So the baptism one. I love this one. So Paul, Paul, in my opinion, he makes a mistake, probably his only mistake that's on record. I bet you if he were standing, he'd go, oy vey, I've got many of them. But, but what happened with Saul, James, is to just go pay their offering, you know, and, and he goes down to the temple. Well, he, he doesn't get to do it because he gets arrested. And he gets to give a speech before it gets really nasty. And in his speech, he's giving his testimony. I was, I was like you guys. And then Ananias, God sent Ananias. And, and this happened and that. And he's telling the story there in Acts 22. And he gives this detail that we don't get in Acts 9 at his conversion. We get it later when he's given the speech. He says, Ananias, God speaking. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Get up. Get up. <laughs> I love how he tells Saul of Tarsus at the time. He's becoming Paul. He tells him. Why are you waiting? <laughs> so, having said that, now looking again at verse 1, he's sending him to Jesse the Bethlehemite. Well, this is the son of Obed, the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. And uh, it's an interesting thought. He's sending him to Bethlehem. David's going to be out in the field with the sheep. Of course, Samuel doesn't know this. But the shepherds were in the fields surrounding Bethlehem at the announcement of the birth of Christ. Well, the birth of Jesus, technically. Uh, well, I don't, I don't want to split airs. We just go with that. And they were keeping watch over their flock. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Now, there were in the same country, that's Bethlehem, shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Was David shepherding, when Samuel comes, was David shepherding in the very same field that would later be the place where the angels, where the messenger, the angel would announce the coming of Christ? I don't know. It's just fun to talk about those kind of things. Very, it could have been the other side of town, but you know, no, David was on the north side of Bethlehem. They were on the east side. I, I don't, but it would be consistent with the Holy Spirit, with God. To make that connection, at least in our minds, to see the possibilities. Anyway, continuing here in verse 1. What, verse 1, am I, am I just jotting down things? Took up a, a page and a half. <laughs> For I have provided myself a king among his sons. Because well, nobody else could provide one. <laughs> and uh, Samuel seems to withhold this detail from Jesse. And everyone else, and David included when he does the anointing, because he won't mention, I mean, he says, I'm come to anoint him, but doesn't say what for. And they, such awe, they held Samuel in such awe, rightfully so, nobody seems to dare to ask. Well, <laughs> proves there were probably all men there, because one of the women would have said, excuse me, 
why are we doing this? <laughs> but the men were like, I'm not asking him. <laughs> He'll tell you, sister, but he get mad at me. So we have this law of contrast that pervade in scriptures where he says, for I have provided myself a king from his sons. And this follows true in life. The law of contrast uh, pervades in life. And hopefully we prevail because we have chosen the king. But it was against this contrast that we find Samuel and the sons of Eli. That was a stark contrast. They're all over the scripture. We have here the contrast of uh, Saul's rejection and David's anointing. We have Cain and Abel. We have a, a softer one, but one nonetheless, Abraham and Lot. What a contrast. Abraham, you know, said, Lot, just pick wherever you want to go, and I'll go the other way. And that's what he does. He said, we need to get away from each other. Family. So he tells him. So, of course, what does Lot do? He looks towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And he tries to mingle it in. It's like, you know, the garden of the Lord. And he just tries to do this. And it's a failure. It's a complete disaster. But Lot was a believer. Peter says he was righteous Lot. But does the contrast exist nonetheless? There are the crucified outlaws. One got the message. The other did not. There are the two people in the church. One is sleeping for a powerful sermon and the other is not. <laughs> so to retaliate, the pastor starts sleeping during the sermon. I'll get even with you, buddy. I'm... Anyway, what a contrast between Stephen and Saul of Tarsus. Both of them exposed to the same law. One saw Christ as their Messiah. The other one hated the person that dared made that, make that confession. The law of contrast, they, they are everywhere. Matthew chapter 25, verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And we do good to know this. We do good to preach it. Well, now we get to verse 2. So we get another sermon. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But Yahweh said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to Yahweh. <laughs> I love this. I love this because it is not what it looks like. But it is what, exactly what it says. Somewhere in Samuel's rebuke of Saul, maybe before, but the closest I can link it, when Samuel rebuked Saul, for half obedience, which is no obedience, and for lying to his face, he detected, he realized that Saul was now deadly. We're not told, but he, he detected that there were tendencies towards murder in Saul. Even the murder of a great prophet such as himself. Maybe it was a remark, a passing remark that Saul made. Maybe it was a squint in his eyes when he looked at Samuel just the wrong way that alerted the prophet that there's a darker side in this man and it is now dominant. Well, Samuel now knew that he was dealing with a killer, one that would not kill his enemy Agag, but would not hesitate to kill him for going to make another king. To follow the orders of God. To, to exercise his duty as a prophet. And so Samuel, discerner of, of danger, he makes this known to the Lord. And the Lord does not disagree with Samuel. Instead, he points out the solution to Samuel's concern. Now, here's the, the, the fun part. He says, but Yahweh said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. In effect, in de facto, he's agreeing with Samuel. Yeah, he's deadly. He'll kill you for this. Now, God is not going to let the dirty hands of Saul do anything to his prophet. But he's not telling Samuel that because he just does that to us. little humor there. <laughs> God's like, look, you know, one of the most upsetting parts about um, the Wizard of Oz is that she could have gone home at any time. And a good witch knew it, which makes her a bad witch, because she didn't tell her. Oh, Dorothy, you could always go. I would have punched that. <laughs> I mean, monkeys chasing me, straw men being tipped, ripped apart, and I could have just clicked my heels and ended this. Anyway, that didn't mean to go there. 
Back to this. Some of you, if you've not seen The Wizard of Oz, it's part of your cultural education. You've got it. I mean, you've got to have a nightmare or two over that as a kid. <laughs> so those monkeys, man. Anyway, <laughs> glad the monkeys that could fly had pants on. So, okay. <laughs> One commentator remarks about this. He said that God had given a plan to deceive Saul to Samuel. And I vehemently disagree with that. I don't think God gave him a plan to deceive at all. That's character, conduct unbecoming of our God. I know the commentator meant well, and otherwise not a bad one, not a great, but he, and I'm sure he picked it up somewhere else, as we tend to do. But anyway, God would simply have Samuel do this, Saul or no Saul. And you say, well, what is the proof of that? Well, when Samuel went to anoint Saul, it was accompanied by a sacrificial dinner. A, a protocol had been established. And God is telling Samuel, uphold the standard. When you anointed Saul, there was a sacrificial meal. And now I want you to anoint David, a sacrificial meal. It's going to happen anyway. And it uh, pretty much... Um, Solves the, the any if it serves as a smokescreen, so be it. But God would have probably sent him to do this nonetheless. And I love the way Samuel brings it up. And God says, you know, I was going to send you there with a heifer anyway. But you know, now that you mentioned it, just do this and it'll fix it. And Samuel says, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, anyway, verse three. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me. The one I named to you. Now, not all invites by God are welcomed by people who claim to be people of God. Rebels uh, do not rush when summoned by God. In Numbers, you know, Moses is authority. How do you attack the authority of Moses? After you see him part the sea, that should have been a de seal the deal. Like, I'm never going to talk bad about that guy. If I steal anybody's chariot hubcaps, it's never going to be Moses. I mean, he just I mean, he just did stuff that made you know God was with him and not that much with you. But this Datham and Abiram, they, they didn't see it that way. And Moses sent to call Datham and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come up. And then they rambled on a little bit more and said, we will not come up twice. And so they went down into the ground that swallowed them up ultimately. Uh, my point is, just because uh, righteous people know better doesn't mean, well, not righteous people, because I'm not ready to say those men were righteous, but just because people who use the religious language, as did Cain, doesn't mean that they are righteous. Jesse, on the other hand, was an honorable man and a good father, and his name carries into the New Testament. Uh, he was no rebel, and his sons, we'll, we'll get to that, they, when dad said something, they, they acted. And it's just a little subtle thing about that that shows up. And anyway, continuing in verse 3, and I will show you what you shall do. Even a veteran prophet like Samuel was subject to progressive revelations of God's will. God didn't say, okay, this is what we're going to do, step one. You, you go to Bethlehem, step two, you take your little, got your horn of oil, you got that. <laughs> he doesn't lay it all out. He says, okay, fill the horn. Here's where I'm sending you. Here's the, the family you're going to meet. And then I'll tell you more when you get there. I, I, I kind of, I find comfort in that. Although I would like God to work a little faster in my life sometime. Uh, it's never my spirit. The spiritual man in me just always submits and is fine with it. It's the flesh. And that's why I make light of it because I know there's no one else uh, who believes in the Lord, that's any different. Our flesh always rears up in protest. It is the opposition party within. If you wanted to eat chocolate ice cream, the flesh would tell you to eat vanilla. If you wanted to eat vanilla, the flesh would tell you to eat chocolate. It's how, how it is. Uh, anyway, actually the flesh will say, don't eat them both and anything else you can eat. Uh, so he says, I will show you what you shall do. As I mentioned, the progressive revelation. You shall anoint for me. The one I named to you. Just think, some of you, you teens here, one day you're going to have kids and you're going to be giving them all these Bible stories. And sometimes they're going to be looking <laughs> and sometimes they're going to be into it and the cycle repeats itself and it is a good cycle. And I am looking forward to the day when you say we want to dedicate our child in front of the congregation. That's going to be exciting. 
Anyway, uh, you shall anoint for me here in verse 3, the one I name to you. Um, This anointing, the oil that he's taken, it's a patent solution. In Exodus chapter 30, where God gave the ingredients for the anointing of the temple and the sons of Aaron and Aaron, uh, God said, you can't make this for anybody else. And if anybody else gets caught using this mixture, this particular mixture, uh, they will be cut off from the land. And, and so uh, it's Samuel being, of course, uh, having access to this, it's anointing the king, it's likely the same solution. But when he says, you shall anoint for me the one I name to you, with all the hardship and the perplexities and the defeats and the failures still to come, in this king's life, he's still going to be God's anointed, and that is true for us. And so with that part that says, you shall anoint for me, that is the Christian. That's us. We have been chosen by God because of our, our submission to the gospel, our acceptance of his terms. Every election is, you know, you hear guys argue for books, 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 the top of books about election. And an election is always based on a choice. Or else it's not an election. I mean, you just, does any, you make a choice. Which one do you elect? Or, let me put it in another way, which one do you choose? Do you choose the gospel message or not? I do not believe for a moment that this election cancels out our free will. Uh, if that were the case, we just... You know, there'd be no such thing as a free will offering a choice or anything else. Like, I don't want to go into the Calvinist thing. Then why'd you go into it? I don't know. I just got found, found myself there. <laughs> Verse 4. So Samuel, listen, you younger ones that don't know about Calvin, you're not missing it, but you later on may get exposed to it. Verse 4. So Samuel did what Yahweh said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? you got to love that. These guys know what he did to Agag. Just saying. <laughs> That's really not the, the really probably the, not the first thing on their mind, though it's in there. But here's an interesting point. Samuel did what Yahweh said. He went to Bethlehem. He conformed to God's will. This is what God wanted him to do. And that outperforms grief. That's what we're seeing there. Uh, human failure, it outperforms serving God, getting up and doing what you have to do in spite of how you feel. I had to wait to do things because we know this. I mean, you're driving to work in the morning and you're in rush hour. You don't feel like doing it, but you have to do it. Samuel's strength, one of his great strengths is he did what God told him the first time. Now, again, he's in Bethlehem where Boaz courted and married Ruth. About 15 miles from Samuel's home. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming uh, and said, Do you come in peace? It's a scary unannounced visit to see this man of all the people. And if, if Saul showed up, they might have been, you know, certainly, you know, what's going on, but not as nervous. I think they were more concerned because the power of this prophet was legendary. In chapter 7 and in chapter 12, I mean, he, he made it thunder. Who can do that? And he, he did other great feats as a man of God. Uh, Saul ruled as king, but Samuel was ruled by God, and that made all the difference. These people knew it. And if God did not extend power to his prophets, uh, they would not have been prophets. Why would anybody ever listen to them? There had to be something about these men that made them different. Even Deborah, or Deborah, you know, and uh, she, she was a prophetess in Israel. Uh, There had to be some signature from God on her life or else no one would have submitted to any of her authority as a judge in Israel. Verse 5, and he said, peaceably, this is the answer. We paused there. It was a big sigh of relief in the village that day. (laughs) So I've come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Sanctify yourselves and come to me uh, to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So he pulls them aside. He says, you know, the Lord's blessings on you. And I want you to come to this sacrifice. And he says, go clean up, then show up. That's when he's sending everybody to sanctify themselves. Uh, you know, don't come in your, you know, work clothes. Clean it up a little bit. This is uh, an official gathering. 
Now, the sacrificial feast um, was then, of course, prepared. That would mean there's some time lapse here. You have to, you know, you take the heifer, you, 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 you cut its throat, you bleed it out properly, you skin it and dress it, and you get the meat. Then you've got to cook the meat. You got, first, you've got to go home and wash up and get your clothes on if you come. There's a lot of time going by. If you can just read it, you say, well, it just took me like 30 seconds to read it. They were probably all there. And it, no, it took some time. Verse 6, so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely Yahweh's anointed is before him. These are the sons of Jesse. So it was, they came. The sons of Jesse, this is, uh, you know, the chieftains of Bethlehem are gathered here, the dignitaries. Doesn't mean they're bad people at all. He says that he looked at Eliab and said, surely Yahweh's anointed is before him. Well, it's no surprise that Samuel expected this, this subject before him to be an adequate replacement or have adequate stature to replace Saul. Now, Samuel doesn't know how long this stuff is going to take. He, it's not going to happen in his lifetime, as a matter of fact. He's probably thinking it's going to be in a week or two. I don't know, but it's not going to happen right away. But this, this is very helpful. God saw David's brothers, and he saw beyond them, to the valley of Elah, all the way past them here in Bethlehem to the valley of Elah, the battle that was going to take place. He saw Eliab at that battle, all of his strength and stature, afraid of Goliath. God saw that. As were David's brothers, as were his countrymen, and as was their king. God saw it all. He knew one person that day in Bethlehem was the one that could be king. And he wasn't going to be hiding amongst the equipment. And he wasn't going to be searching for donkeys either. That he never found, incidentally, Saul. David alone had the heart for God. And because of that, he had the courage that comes with it to face the menace when nobody else had it. So he writes in his Psalms, with the fear of the Lord, I can run against a troop. I become like a, you know, a superpower, I, I get. A superhero. David alone slew the giant, but there was so much more inside this man than the slaying of the giant. What if, what if you take chapter 17 out of the Bible of 1 Samuel, David killing Goliath, and you just leave everything else about David? You're no less impressed. Said, I mean, the, the giant thing is just a giant treat. But there was so much in him just waiting to, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. I mean, that's David, Psalm 1. And on and on he just goes, you know, I've been old, I've been young. You know, I mean, he says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their offspring begging for bread. He just lays out these powerful blessings throughout. He talks about that in, in Psalm 110. I should have bookmarked it. In Psalm 110, he has some interesting things to say. He said, well, the first verse, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David was a prophet, total prophet, just as much as any other prophet, as much as Samuel. Not yet, but he's going to be. But then he talks about these other things. He says, your Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall execute Speakers of the house, presidents and vice presidents in the day of his wrath. It doesn't matter their position. It means nothing to him. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. And he just continues on and on. I know, I'm getting a little excited. Because it's so prophetic. He's looking down like a, a telescope down through the ages. And this is David. There's more to him than killing the giant. That God is going to squeeze out of him. And how many countless multitudes have been blessed by his words and his deeds. Here's an interesting thing about David killing the giant. We have no psalm of him singing about killing the giant. That would have been my first song. I killed the giant. You did not. I killed the giant. You, I would just be, every little kid would know that song. Rick killed the giant. We did not. But David doesn't do that. <laughs> Here's another one I wrote while I was... No, okay. 
So we have a psalm of David fleeing Absalom, his son. We have a psalm of David fleeing Saul. We have a psalm of David hiding in a cave. We have a psalm of David singing about pretending to be crazy in in the Philistine king's court. We have him singing about battles fought, but we have no song about him slaying the giant. What does that say? That he did sing of his struggles before God, but not his personal exploits. And he, he, he talked to, he pled, you know, God, I, you know, I, night and day, I'm on my pillow crying out to you. How long are you going to take before you come and answer my prayers? These are the Psalms of David. He almost, I can remember a time in going through the Psalms years ago saying, oh, that's not a Psalm of David. I'm almost turning my nose up to it. It's silly, right? I know. I confess it. But I just so taken by the man. Verse 7. And Yahweh said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For Yahweh does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. Oh, boy, do we need to learn that one. How many of us judge another person? Well, I mean, I do profile a little bit. Uh, I think it's, it's not, as long as you don't do it too much. You cannot help to do it. I think if, um, I don't know, if somebody comes into a store at night that I'm in and he's wearing a mask, I'm going to be suspicious of him. <laughs> a year ago, you would have said, yeah, me too. <laughs> now, I, now I go to places, I see people in masks, and I'm suspicious of them. But anyway, here, the great prophet. This is what's powerful about this work. But Yahweh said to Samuel, do not look at his outside appearance or his physical stature. Physical stature. This great prophet is subject to wrong instincts and misleading impulses. Samuel, if he can get it wrong, then I can get it wrong. Thus the need for humility and dependence on God. Remember, Samuel's telling us this. There's no way any of us would know about any, like, like Jonah in the, in the fish. I mean, no one would have known his prayer unless Jonah came out and told us. Unless you had stuck a mic on him, you know, <laughs> and you recorded his prayer. These men, they, they, were, they were not proud of what they did, but they knew the benefit by the Spirit of saying, listen, this, this, Jonah says, this is the fool that I was on that day. And Samuel is saying, I thought it was Eliab. I mean, you should have saw the kid. He was a perfect replacement. And God said, no, you're wrong. God is concerned with the character. More than anything, the Sermon on the Mount says to us, conduct comes from character. If your conduct is dark, then your character will be such. If it is light, then your character will be such. So Samuel missed he missed how easily one could forget a lesson, one could be moved by an outward appearance and be terribly wrong and do it again. Because when he got to Saul, he said, this is the king. Now he's in front of David, uh, Jesse's sons and he's doing it again. Don't judge a book by its cover. It's such a simple lesson. And David, and by no means perfect, David loved and longed for God above all else in his life, and God knew it, and God tells us about it and finds others doing the same thing. There's a vast difference between committing sin and upholding sin. There is a vast difference. For the Lord, he says here, for Yahweh does not see as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance. Well, that's good news. Unfortunately, it's not practiced enough. We turn up our nose to people, and that's why we're warned. You know, some have entertained angels unaware, we're told in Hebrews. Abraham, sitting in his tent, three guys show up. I would not have been comfortable. Three guys just show up in my unannounced. Uh, but Abraham, you know, gave him a meal. He had discernment. Anyway, uh, Eliab, and when he says, but I have refused him, he is speaking about Eliab in verse 6. It is not enough to act on a command of God or a leading. I believe it is very helpful to also act very favorably. Imagine, keeping with the baptism, because well, just, we just had one Sunday, so it's fresh in my mind. Imagine being a reluctant baptee. 
<laughs> All right, go ahead. Well, you wouldn't get baptized. You may get smacked around a little bit, but you wouldn't get baptized. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior? Yeah, I guess. Well, I guess you're not getting baptized by me. And so to be able to act on a command with some zeal, you know, zest. Uh, zeal for your house has consumed me. It was said of Jesus after he made a whip and started driving the, the thieves out of the house of God. So, uh, and Saul, of course, is an example. He says, for Yahweh does not see as a man sees, but looks on the outward appearance. Jesus Christ, he's in Jerusalem, and he's giving signs and wonders to the people. And they're like, wow, we like this guy. <laughs> but this is what John writes. John chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not believe himself to them. Same Greek word. Because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And so on the outside, they looked like they were all, you know, totally on board with this is the Messiah and would do whatever he decides and that uh, John points out, that wasn't the case. I was there. He says, but he looks at the heart. Uh, well, we can't always see a person's heart. Matthew 12, verse 35, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. You know, you get a guy that just comes in and just ruins everything. I know I've said this before. If, if, if we just take you out of the picture, everybody's happy. I don't want to be that guy, ever. Well, depends. It depends. If I'm in the workplace and I'm preaching Christ and everybody's unhappy, I want to be that guy. But uh, when it comes to just being righteous or unrighteous, of course, I don't want to be the bully or the troublemaker or the devil's instrument. Verse 8, so Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has Yahweh chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has Yahweh chosen this one. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, Yahweh has not chosen these. So here, three times we read, he made them pass by and they passed by. And it's a picture of the dads, okay, next. And the son's just doing what they're told. Uh, it, it doesn't seem any, you know, it, it's these kind of snapshots in Scripture are on purpose, and they're meaningful. If they were written this way in some other piece of literature, it could be just, you know, part of the writer's style. But when God does it and preserves it, there's a lesson. Every jot, every tittle. Do not pass away. It's all meaningful. Jesse was a respectful, uh, respected father in his home amongst his boys, even though they had now coming into manhood. So with the process of elimination... Um, it will be a clear choice when it's made. We know who it won't be. Only Samuel can hear God's voice. The people have to accept the prophet's decision. Uncommon sense was in rhythm with God. Verse 11, And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all you, the young men here? And then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. This uh, Samuel said to Jesse, are all the men. What, what if he never asked that question? I mean, it, David was so insignificant in his home that his father didn't even think to bring him. Not that he was disliked or anything, but it's just he's just a kid out with the sheep. You're looking for someone to anoint. Can't be him. So... That's how unassuming he was, too, in the eyes of men. Men could not see what God saw in David. You know, Michelangelo could look at a stone and he could see a sculpture. I look at a stone and I think about, oh, I'd like to break that. Uh, you, know, you know, he just, you, you know, God, of course, has that perception that is divine. Well, what was it about David uh, was, was, was David an embarrassment to his dad because his dad noticed his creative abilities? You know, you don't want to, he, he has a harp. <laughs> you don't want him. Uh, maybe he didn't appreciate. He's not as manly as Eliab. Look at Eliab. Go ahead, Eliab. Flex for everybody. And he's a puny kid. 
He probably was a puny kid at this point in his life. But again, God saw beyond all this. He saw the beyond the valley of Elah. Jesse, as I mentioned, he will be remembered by God as the father of the one who raised the sweet psalmist of Israel, the lamp of Israel. It continues in verse 11. And there he is keeping the sheep. Because <laughs> he won't let anybody else have them. No. <laughs> all right, that doesn't mean that. This is an unin... Well... This is a surprising prophetic word, unintended by Jesse. Jesse is just natural conversation. There he is keeping the sheep. But God says, yeah, he's the shepherds, the kings of Israel were to be shepherds. They were not to be men who lost their donkeys and couldn't find them. That, that contrast is, matters. It's part of the story. It's a fact. And it's amazing how it all comes together. So at this word, there he is keeping the sheep. I think Samuel saw in a flash that this was something that could not be ignored, that, that this was the one. He may have even gotten a little excited, and here's why I say that. Notice his insistence where he says here in verse 11, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Let me reread it in my translation. Send and bring him, for nobody eats till I see him before the Lord. Nobody, there's not going to be a dinner. I don't see this kid. They rushed out to get him. They could smell the, 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 the heifer cooking, and they were ready. Uh, of course, that's just levity, not really part of the story. But that is what he said precisely. Nobody eats until I get a look at the lad. Now, when Samuel first met King Saul, as I mentioned, he was a donkey driver who couldn't find his father's donkeys. Evidently not a, good, not a good one. He spent days in search of them without success. And that's how Saul led the nation, and not in a very noble or successful manner. And this is all going to be different with this king because we won't find him hiding amongst the equipment, as I mentioned earlier. We're going to find him leading the army because he had a shepherd's heart. And he had a shepherd's heart because he had a heart for God. They go together. You cannot have the, shepherd, the shepherd's heart in the context of Yahweh without Yahweh taking hold of you. Verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And Yahweh said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel said, Yeah, baby. <laughs> he didn't say that. So, so he went, uh, he, he sent and brought him. Uh, Samuel's first sight of David. This is his first impression, and this is how he captures it. He says he was, he was a bright-cheeked boy with bright eyes. And why was his cheeks ruddy? Because he's running. <laughs> he's running. Dad wants you. And he acts upon it. So he paused for a minute. This is Samuel's first look at David. What is that first look at our king going to be like in heaven? What is that first look at Jesus going to be like? I mean, if there were tears in heaven, then there will not be. I'd cry a river. But there won't. There'll be joy and there'll just be, you know, everything. God will take care of it. Well, anyway, this ruddy look, this redness about him, more than likely from the run answering his father's call. David has no idea what is coming. And he's a lively choice, though. And, and Samuel remembers it that way. He was bright eyes and good looking. And so he's seeing the lad coming and Samuel's judging him, you know, not in a negative way. He's looking him over, saying, saying to himself, don't look at the outside appearance. Don't look at the outside appearance. <laughs> no, he was not. But forget already, Samuel. God told you, don't do that. So he later on, when he goes to get home and days made, however later, he writes this down. He reminisces about this moment. So the question always comes back is not, am I qualified? Am I called? That's the story of David. He wasn't qualified to be anything but a shepherd boy. And yet, God says, he is the one, just like that. Anoint him. Verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. It's, I mean, this is so much nicer than reading about Saul. 
which we'll get to next. <laughs> we just couldn't put the two together because it's very, you know, troublesome, the next section of this scripture with Saul and his melancholy, evil melancholy at that. So here, verse 13, when Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. As I mentioned, this pouring the oil on him, uh, I mean, not to be flippant, but it is a little comical. Imagine if I went to the auto parts store and I got a can of, you know, I don't know, 10, 30, and I pour it on your head. I mean, everybody's going to be looking at that and notice it. So, well, here you have somebody like Samuel a holy man, in a very solemn moment. Nobody's laughing. Nobody's doing anything but staring at this moment. The brothers have got to be saying, what is this? What is this all about? But we're not, we're not told. Samuel, we don't read of Samuel saying, well, he's going to be the king. Well, wisely so, because what would happen if word got around like that? Well, that'd be the end of David. So uh, everyone else is also ready to eat. I'm sure when the... Um, David caught some flack for this from his brothers. Where did David sit at the meal? Did he sit like Saul did at the table with Samuel? Probably so. And his brothers were probably saying, what is, are we in the twilight zone? What just happened to us? So, the uh, um, Josephus, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that David was 10 years old. I, I doubt that. Josephus gets stuff wrong a lot. He gets some things that are helpful, but a lot of stuff he gets wrong. David is likely 14 or 15 years old at this anointing. When he goes to slay the giant, he's either 16 or 17 years old. He's starting to, to he's certainly taller and he's beginning to fill out a little bit more. Little hints that when Jonathan offers him to, his armor, well, you know, if he's this tall, he's not going to give him his armor. He's just topple him over. <laughs> Say, you can kill a giant, but you can't wear armor. So um, anyway, <clears throat> uh, David, again, would not sit on the throne for another 16 years. It would be 16 years of getting into the king's court and then being chased out of the king's court. The struggles he went through. He'd be 30 years old when he finally becomes king over Judah, 37 years old when he is crowned king over all of Israel. And so between this first anointing and the second anointing, when he becomes king of Judah, there are a lot of trials and suffering and humiliations, but there are also that he's becoming the man of God. It is the making of a man of God. Incidentally, that's Alan Redpath's title for his commentary on the life of David, the making of a man of God, a very appropriate title. Uh, but he was called to endure. He was hated and persecuted by He loved Saul also. And he writes a song about Saul after Saul is, ex is, is, is killed. Even though Saul hunted him like a partridge. When Paul was called, God said to Ananias, Well, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. I, I mean, I, 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 I feel I suffer just over inconveniences. Just you know, running out of half and half just bothers me to no end. And uh, I'm not proud of these things, but... <laughs> Quite quick, we become irritated. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Uh, contrast, look at verse 14, where the Spirit departs from Saul. And that is intentional. The, Saul, Samuel is making these sweeping contrasts between the, God, uh, the king that God rejected and the one that is now anointed. So David now becomes the protagonist. He is the dominant character of the story from this point forward. Saul will still have uh, his place because he is the antagonist. He is the one that is coming against the, the main character. And uh, it is going to be vicious. The dark ages of Saul will continue for years to come. And it says, so Samuel arose and went to, to Ramah. Life for Samuel, and therefore ministry for Samuel, goes on. But it's so, you know, uh, anticlimactic. You know, you would expect, and Samuel's heart swelled, you know, like the Grinch or something. You know, you would hope something like that would be said. You just get Samuel went home. And uh, so it is. We have a baby, we hold the child up before the congregation, then we, then the child and the family goes, and it seems so uneventful, but it means a lot. And 
that is uh, something we have to learn to develop with our spiritual senses. Let's pray. Our Father, what a delight to see you in action on such a high note. And yet, what a reality to have to face the other things that go along with it. And such is this life. But it is worth it. And we thank you that you are teaching us, exposing us to these truths so that you can do something with us because that's what we want. We who love you want to serve you. It is our joy to do something for you, even if it is unpleasant. May, uh, may we not resist. May it get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.